Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast, conversations with experts from around the globe about the discovery and creation of the future of higher education and lifelong learning. I am Jose Pepez Camilla, director of Tech Labs, an educational innovation unit of Tecnológico de Monterrey. Over the past three decades, I have been working on innovative pedagogies and learning technologies. I hope this EduTrends podcast will help us understand the future of learning. I traveled to Boston and talked with Gene Hammond, Learn Lounge co-founder. Learn Lounge is an education innovation hub which aims to empower innovators to expand access to high-quality education for all learners. Gene Hammond is an active angel investor focusing on early-stage high-tech startups. She shared with us her vision on how can education evolve to meet the needs of students to cope with the challenges of the future. Also, we exchange ideas about entrepreneurship and diversity in ad tech ventures. I hope you find our talk interesting. Um, so, Gene, uh, uh, I'm uh, very happy uh, to be here in Boston with you in, in Learn Lounge. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, I know that you have a, a very tight schedule, so being so lucky to have a meeting with you in a short time. Uh, I'm very happy. Many people from Tech de Monterrey have come here. Our president has been here with uh, Hakan, for instance, and he always talks about Learn Lounge. He says, we should do something like this in, in Tech de Monterrey. Okay, that sounds great. Great. Uh, so tell me, uh, do you believe that education should be transformed? Yes, education needs to go through a, 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 a number of different changes. Um, some of them have to do, some of them will, will, some of the disruption will come naturally because of the physical to digital transition that the industry is going through. And other industries that have gone through a physical to digital transition have a fairly uh, substantial amount of change that happens in them as well. So the last little 3.5 trillion dollar industry of media, music, and entertainment when it went from physical to digital, lots of change. So education coming up uh, towards six trillion dollars of total spend worldwide and um, probably hitting 10 trillion by 2030. Um, high growth and a physical to digital transition all happening at once. And we have to change for a lot of other reasons too. We're not serving uh, our students and learners to all the ways that they need to learn. We're not preparing uh, people for the workforce of the future. And so, um, so we really need to make sure that we tune up the system to match with what's, going, what's needed now and going to be needed in the future um, for uh, for people to have uh, great employment and great lives. So the the, the first part of your answer is related to the uh, digitalization of um, the educational industry compared to other industries like music. We, uh, we are really far behind. Way behind. The, the last major industry to start down this path and um, sort of structural uh, uh, 
impediments caused by the way we've highly uh, localized uh, the early the early part of education, right? In other words, what we would call K twelve here, or primary secondary, is uh, is almost always very uh, locally controlled. Um, sometimes the curricula comes in uh, countrywide or statewide, but but really lots of um, lots of localness to it because there's often you know you're, we're working with kids, we're working with people's kids. It's it's important that people be involved or have some feel that they're um, in control. Um, but 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 that's caused us to have a very slow moving sort of you know um, you know. Teachers are being trained the way teachers were trained decades ago, and you know so there's many impediments in the system, and and then just simple facts. When we started Learn Launch six and a half years ago, um, probably in the U.S., only about fifteen, maybe twenty percent of the schoolrooms in the in K-12 schools had enough bandwidth to be able to deliver online uh, online products. And now it's estimated to be approximately 93 to 95% of the classrooms have enough bandwidth. So, hey, the teachers are trying new things out and, and lots and lots of change is happening as a result. So it's a combination of factors that are all involved in, 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 in this transition. Uh, probably the biggest of which is in fact teacher training. Teachers are uncomfortable with taking on something new um, without some amount of training, like any workforce, right? No workforce wants to be given a whole pile of new stuff um, without enough time to learn about it. Um, but for some reason, it's just been a little extra slow in education. So uh, one of the um, uh, things that I, I say to researchers in Tech de Monterrey is uh, try to focus on the problem, not in the solution. No? So in the case of the industry of uh, education, we know there's there should be more digitalization, but what are the problems? Oh there? yes, the problems uh, the problems are pretty uh, clear that um, we haven't understood, and this this applies to everything, right? This applies to um, primary and secondary schools. It applies to colleges and universities. It applies to um, uh, professional learning or uh, job training kind of learning. Um, you know, we we haven't sort of structured. Uh, the information into the right size bytes that people are able to learn it quickly. So learning science and brain science shows that, you know, 10-minute um, bytes of information followed by little assessments to, 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 to nail the, the learning um, that we can see when we look at, 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 at um, neurons light up exactly what works the best. And a long 55-minute lecture where everybody falls asleep at about Hour, at about 35 minutes, that's not the way to do it. So just lots of different things about the way we do things haven't been structured as best for the people who are receiving the information. Um, you know, we, we, we obviously have a non-engagement problem, lots of places across education. So what is it that it takes to engage? So some of that, again, has to do with the structure of, give, of the information, um, whether we make it a little bit more... Uh, game-like where you achieve the next level and then you sort of uh, move up or whether we make it a little bit more um, engaging through the use of, of other technologies. Um, you know, people all over the world are 
talking to speakers to tell them to, you know, <laughs> Alexa, play something. Um, and so, you know, what, why, why isn't speech recognition used in our education products? We don't know. So just, just there's lots of, of things that are available to us to work on this. And then, you know, hiding underneath there is instructional design that actually puts the information into the, into the right size um, bytes for, for people to absorb. And, and talking about um, education of adults, higher education or continuing education, lifelong learning, um, in some countries like in, uh, in Chile and Mexico, uh, uh, higher education now by law is uh, uh, it, it's free and uh, it's supposed to be accessible for everyone. Uh, personally, I believe that uh, higher education will change a lot in the future, in the following 10 to 20 years, and that some people will be uh, going to other paths uh, that will be recognizing the market, uh, I will say, uh, equivalent to a higher education. Uh, what, what kind of future do you see for adults in the following well, 10 to 20 years? Well, even today, we have about five or six different business models all masquerading under the title higher education, right? Okay. Um, and there couldn't be anything more different from, you know, a small, local, uh, relatively technically focused community college and a giant research institution that's really in the business of doing research. And, um, and, 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 yet, and yet we use uh, the same word for them. You know, online... Uh, Schools um, have some gr quite different characteristics, both in who they serve and and the mode in which they do it. So, uh, all of this is is uh, is just happening, changing quite quickly. Um, I, I certainly agree with you. I think that we need to help people understand pathways that get them to what they need to know, and then understand the idea that. Hmm. My job is changing. I need to go back, and maybe as a result of that certificate I got the last time, it's easy to do the next um, follow-on certificate that moves me into a slightly different uh, way of thinking about it. You know, I, I don't think jobs are going to go away. What's going to happen is specific tasks are going to be automated. So maybe there's five people right now in the supply chain management group, but maybe with automation, um, one person will oversee what used to be two of those uh, tasks and roles. And then because the, the automated procedures, once they're set up, can do huge parts of what used to be the job. And so um, so I think that we'll see that kind of thing happening over and over again. Um, and, and it also speaks to the kind of skills that are the most important that are completely non-automatable, right? Uh, so communication skills, critical thinking, uh, the ability to, um, to show business judgment, and, and Very, to, like a human-like uh, kind work, of And uh, to work in skills, teams. No? Yeah. yeah. So sometimes they're called soft skills. I think we call them soft skills because they're so hard. Do you know how I call them? Power skills. Power skills. I like that one. 21st century skills, soft skills, power skills. I like power skills because they definitely are the ones that make you be able to um, work in groups which is how we do work. And talking about um, um, other kind of skills, uh, how did you become an entrepreneur? Oh, hmm. So I had, uh, uh, t after 
college, I had taken some time uh, to work in a, in a really small organization. Um, so I had to look in and learn how to do the books and other things. And, um, and, and while I was doing that, I thought, you know, I actually do think I, I, I like business a lot. And, um, and started thinking about maybe going to business school. And so, uh, so as a result, it turned out that um, um, at the time, uh, MIT was having, uh, still has um, MIT uh, Enterprise Forum. And so basically companies would come in and present, and then a group of sort of thinking people would ask them good questions, and everybody would watch. So it was sort of part of the entrepreneurship uh, early entrepreneurship days in Boston. And I, my husband and I, I don't think we were married at the time, but we were about to be married, um, uh, loved going to those. They just were fun. It was a sort of exciting event. And so pretty soon I started taking classes that would move in that direction. And so by the time I, I went to business school, I was pretty sure I was interested in working in um, a startup at some point in time. At the time, and this is MIT, which is now well known for entrepreneurship. There were no classes in entrepreneurship, um, but uh, but I co-founded a company uh, with some people that I worked with um, when we lived in Scotland um, about mm, five years out of business school, and that company was later acquired about four years later by 3Com, and and then I went on to run a couple of uh, companies for uh, venture uh, teams that wanted. Uh, somebody with the kind of experience I had um, to do that. And uh, during that time, I started also doing angel investing since I'd had a great exit in that first company. And it turns out I love angel investing even more than entrepreneurship uh, for myself um, because I love coaching people through the process of entrepreneurship. So I will say that you became an entrepreneur because uh, you found that you like business and some kind of serendipia and self-taught courses. Uh, but yeah. uh, but do well, you think also, that we can... Also, actually, very interesting was the company I worked for when my husband's career took us to live in Scotland. And, and when I got there, um, there were about 30 people, a little less than 30 people. And when we left two and a half years later, we'd grown to 350 people. And it was the very beginning of the computer networking uh, surge, and we were we were the a very significant supplier in Europe, and um, and so uh, by being the sort of token MBA on the on the ground, I was in every team. Oh, we need to figure out how much. Um, money to invest in each of our four product lines. We have to figure out a new process for manufacturing. What's the new distribution strategy for the Scandinavian countries? So I was on all those different teams. And so by the time it came time to found a company, it was like, oh yeah, I've done this already. So it was actually a wonderful learning experience. Being around any high growth company is a great learning experience for yeah, somebody and, who wants to be an yeah, entrepreneur. Sort of an informal learning experience. And, and do you think that uh, entrepreneurship can be taught? Take the Monterey, we offer opportunities for students, courses. We have an incubator, an accelerator, yeah. et cetera. And, uh, we offer yeah. them opportunities. I'm, I'm a big fan in the idea that many aspects of entrepreneurship can be taught, and um, and in particular the really important ones, which are um, focusing in on product market fit, making sure you understand exactly how that product will work in the marketplace and who to sell to. And if you get that right, then lots of the other processes are 
they're small business processes, but they're not um, they're not particularly hard. They're not they're not hard in themselves. It's hard to do all of them at once. The problem with entrepreneurship is that this very small team is trying to do like you know, 18 things simultaneously and there's not enough time or there's not enough, uh, you know, understanding about how to do all of them. And so that's the hard part is doing all of it at once. And, um, but if you get the product market fit right by really listening to the market, then, then, then many of the other parts um, are, are certainly achievable. And so what, what you can't teach is, um, is for people to feel comfortable in an environment of high, of high uncertainty. Right, because entrepreneurship is a, is uncertain. At any moment in time, you just don't know. Will we have enough money for this? Will that deal close? Um, will the developers get the product done on time? You know, all that stuff is it's a it's it's a it's a high uncertainty environment. If people feel very anxious in that environment, they shouldn't be there. And it's probably something that can be taught. Well, the, 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 the other, the, the, everything except for the ability to tolerate the tolerate uh, that, uh, uncertainty. uncertainty is probably teachable. Okay. But, 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 but not everybody feels comfortable there, and no, nor should they. It's, there's lots of great jobs out there that aren't entrepreneurship. It's just that entrepreneurial thinking, thinking, well, how do we solve the problem? How can we listen to the market? How can we um, get in and... Um, and implement these changes is 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 powerful no matter where you are, and then and then the the fact of I don't know if we have enough money to make payroll <laughs> is, is 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 a is a is a condition of small enterprise that that adds risk and other things. When uh, most of business now is uh, international, no, so you have to uh, think not only in your country or on your school system or the region you live, but in other places. And, and part of the things that uh, we do in Tech de Monterrey is uh, what we call global vision. We want our students to have this global vision. And, and a way of doing this is uh, encouraging students to spend some time abroad. Around 60% of our students go abroad for a full semester experience in other countries. Uh, but uh, there are some of them that uh, for sometimes uh, money reasons or other reasons cannot do this experience. What do you think about this kind of uh, experiences abroad? Are they enriching? Are they oh, worth? Uh, personally, I, if, when I finished high school, I hitchhiked around Europe for uh, half a year. I love what I learned and how to think about how other people think and how other people live. And, and it was just, it was wonderfully personally. And so I think it's the best thing possible for people. But you don't have to go that far afield to get people who are, you know, living in a different environment than you. And, 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 and so there's lots of places to learn the, the, the issues of understanding how a mix of different people are, are thinking and understanding. And also with online today, you can get large parts of, of, of a global experience um, remotely, um, you know, whether it be taking some classes and participating in the discussions, um, you know, sort of, you know, a, across the ocean or around the world, you know, all of those things are possible. It's not as it's not as uh, overwhelming and exciting, but it, but it, but but it, but lots of that can be done, and and I just think that the that the um, the problem of thinking about how others think is the most important part. 
I think the, I think the, or, or, or maybe not how they think, people think pretty similar, uh, how they react to, to change. The, 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 the other part is that um, because of the facts that I mentioned before, um, not all of the products we're inventing in ed tech are, in fact, going to be easily transportable. So even though it's easy to say, um, hey, once we're digital, it's a global world, all these products could be viewed from anywhere, um, it's not always true. It's not always true that the product will fit correct, the educational product or or courseware or method of, uh, of delivery will fit exactly in other cultures. And so, um, so I think we'll have some differences. It's more, um, uh, so much more uh, fragmented market than it's a music, very, for instance. It's a is, very, is there's no Lady Gaga of uh, Yeah, there's no Lady Gaga of education. education. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and even though the Khan Academy reaches many places, it doesn't actually do some of the most important parts of what's needed to engage people. Maybe maybe Sesame Street. Maybe Sesame Street is the example. example of the of the globalness of some parts of the of education. Yeah, interesting. Um, and YouTube, right? If you want to learn how to fix something, go to YouTube. Go to YouTube. Yes. <laughs> well, YouTube is a a, a way of um, for many people to learn, uh, to become more uh, informal learners, and I. Uh, I believe that um, self-directed learning will be much more important in the future. Um, when, you, when you were talking about this... Uh, I think uh, the trouble with the word self-directed is that um, people don't always know which are the high-value steps in their pathway. Exactly. And, and, and hence they sign up for you know, fake opportunities that they think are going to be the right learning and maybe they're not. And so, again, quality control and how to make sure that people can get to the right bites at the right time or they have the information for that. So, actually, I think we need, we need lots of ways of helping people understand what's out there. And, um, and you know, it's an industry that hasn't been good at sort of documenting the catalog, so to speak, in terms of saying, you know, the, these, are the, these are the ways that you could teach, you know, whatever – uh, physics in high school, and here's some different ways that have been successful. Which are the best ones, and which ones will fit for your your learners? And and it's almost like we don't have a consumer reports magazine for mm -hmm. education. We we know more about whether that washing machine will help me wash heavy rugs than we know about whether that physics class will be actually fit, a, a good fit for the type of learner that I'm bringing to them. So mentoring uh, people through their careers uh, is a business opportunity. Yes, it is actually. Um, so, uh, so you know, here in the states, um, where there's more uh, venture funding for ed tech than in lots of parts of the world, um, but it's still remarkably uh, small compared to the percent of GDP that that it is. Um, uh, Education is about 8% of GDP, and um, venture investing is less than 1% of all venture investing goes into education. Times. And so um, a little bit of growth and, 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 and workforce ed tech, as we get new uh, startups showing up in uh, the skilling and reskilling, 
around the workforce, we see a little bit more money coming in from traditional venture as opposed to education specialists and, um, and impact investors. Um, but even so, um, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely a, um, oops, I lost my train of thought. What was the question? You know, we, well, we were talking about um, uh, entrepreneurship and mentorship as um, mentoring oh, people in their careers. Yes, yeah. So, so definitely. So, so one of the things that we noticed was that um, that of the uh, ten unicorn ed tech companies last year, companies that reached a valuation around a billion dollars, um, uh, seven of them are from China, and and all of those except for uh, VIP Kid are all about um, prepping for college and getting uh, getting getting ready for college or having enrich enrichment mm -hmm. at high school or other things like that and some of those in the in the U.S. wouldn't be in the education industry because um, uh, students youngsters get support from going to camp or something like that and so the camp industry isn't thought a part of the education industry even though in fact it's some of the things that get taught there but there was a person in here from a large uh, chinese company who was describing to me that not only did he help uh, with prepping for college but he helped pick exactly what's the right program to go into in college mm -hmm. and then as they're getting ready to graduate from college he'd pick them back up again and help them with career planning mm -hmm. including additional uh, uh, educational opportunities going forward so that kind of sort of view of thinking about that yep it's an opportunity mm. and and really needed because um, because at, with a high rate of change of where the jobs are and things like that, um, pe people don't know. People don't know that there's, you know, huge numbers of cybersecurity and data analyst jobs going unfilled, uh, and yet they're still training for something else, some some job that may not be there pretty soon. That is not a, um, a job. because they don't they don't know the rate of change of where the jobs are. I imagine that you have uh, uh, invested uh, in, what, uh, 200 companies or more than that? Uh, yeah, as an angel investor, yeah. Yeah, as an angel investor. And you talk to these uh, investors uh, frequently. Have you find a pattern of what EdTech investors are good at and what are they bad at? Okay, so a couple of things. Well, one of the reasons we formed Learn Launch was my experience of uh, having gotten together a number of companies um, that were trying to do uh, things for kids or education, and then finding that my friends in the angel community were like, mm, scary, hard, don't want to invest there. And so, um, so looking at that, I felt that um, that an accelerator. Maybe I should describe the whole learning mm -hmm. system a bit too. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'll do the I'll do this accelerator one first. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, so uh, so so looking at that, I felt that an accelerator would really be a great way to help uh, the companies get a little further along, and also help uh, me be able to. Um, uh, provide more knowledge to the next stage investors. So I could say, oh, here's this company. They've been doing this, this, and this. They still need to work on that, and that's something that you really know how to do. 
you know, Mr. Angel Investor, uh, why don't you get involved? So I could so I could actually sort of tailor things more more accurately. And then for the later stage companies, same thing with uh, venture firms. Um, hey, uh, this company's gotten to this stage. Um, I think the opportunity space looks like this. Let's take a look. And so really trying to trying to sort of help um, with the companies with the um, investors being able to understand you know where the company was. And in fact, one of our big differentiators at our accelerator is that we um, uh, provide a tiny bit of funding as the companies come into the accelerator, and then um, just a little ways in, we sit down. Um, and together write milestones for a snapshot that we're going to take six months later. So six months, what will your company look like? What will revenues be? How, what will be in the leads? Will you have filled the position for somebody to head up marketing? Uh, what's happening about uh, what's happening about the product uh, the the product um, roadmap and where will you be on that? So sort of, um, uh, you know, what kind of impact will you be having with the product? So sort of imagining a snapshot uh, for six months later, we write it down, we sign it as a contract, and then they're eligible for substantially more funding based on hitting the milestones. So the idea is you hit 100% of the milestones, you get 100% of the uh, of the follow-on funding. So we have two programs. We have Boost for super early stage companies, well, not super, but should be companies that are just um, that 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 have product, but they're still finalizing product market fit, and so maybe a little bit of shipping, a little bit of revenue, but really quite early, and they stay with us for about um, three and a half months, and then they they get twenty thousand dollars when they start, and the milestone payments can total fifty. Um, our later stage companies that have revenues in the um, uh, quarter of a million uh, range, um, get 50K when they come in, and they have milestone payments up to 70. So again, just enough money to keep them interested, but perhaps more importantly, that list of things, achievements that they, they need to show back to us as a part of getting those payments are exactly the kind of things that follow-on investors are looking for. So sort of an understanding of where they are for angel-level companies and due diligence-ready materials uh, for venture uh, for the later crowd. So it's, a, it, it's one of the things that we think is especially useful for our companies in the way we run our accelerator. But what was different from uh, this accelerator or, or what you do with the tech uh, accelerators to other accelerators, in particular in the edtech field? Yeah, so we spend lots and lots of time really understanding the industry, understanding, you know, uh, who, who really is the buyer, uh, who's the influencer on the buy, on the buyer, and um, and then just working specifically with those companies. So if this company needs to be um, selling to that type of community college, we get people from those types of, of, of institutions to be amongst the mentors and actually help them figure it out and get it going. And so, you know, um, we unleash over 170 mentors on our on our accelerator folks. So at any point in time, probably only 30 or so are working with the companies, but lots of people want to come in and help. And then in addition, uh, we have a role we call venture partner, which are uh, senior industry players, and each one acts as a guardian angel for one of the companies as they go through the program. So a weekly call just to make sure that they're uh, utilizing the resources, that the resources they need are becoming available. So we spend lots of time going out and getting companies specific resources and applying them directly on the companies. 
So very, very, very sort of customized. And and more recently, we've been building out our um, our set of folks that can work on workforce ed tech companies because we see a lot of companies being formed um, that we think of as being about the skilling and reskilling issues. And sometimes they're subject specific, like home health care aid training, and sometimes they're more uh, process like, um, you know, how to. Uh, how to do assessments at an advanced level for different types of of, uh, of skills. And uh, as a woman uh, entrepreneur, have you faced some uh, uh, difficulties? Uh, uh, how many women are doing entrepreneurship in the United States right now? And you think that's enough or should be more than that? Oh, well, so... Yeah, you know, so 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 the facts are pretty clear. Uh, the venture community is particularly bad, both at employing women in decision making roles and in investing in women. And so, um, uh, most years, something between two and four percent of the total venture funding goes to women. And it's clear that women, women have more than two and four percent of the good ideas. So, so right, for sure. for me personally, you know, I think I was stubborn and didn't notice very much. But there's no doubt that I had a tough time. You know, I don't even think I knew what the word mentor meant, uh, much less go out and effectively use them during the time I was um, both a co-founder of Axon Networks and a CEO at Quarry and other places. But um, but by being an angel investor, I figured out exactly how tough it was. And later, I uh, brought a branch of Golden Seeds to Boston. So I'd been an angel for about three or four years, and then Golden Seeds is a is a um, investment group that requires that there's a senior leader in the management team of the company in order to invest. So the investment thesis is that um, that uh, diverse teams make better decisions, and and if you don't have a woman in your top three to five senior leaders of the company, you don't have a diverse enough team. And so um, Golden Seeds has unleashed billions of dollars with the follow-on funding amongst the companies they've invested in over time. And during the time that we were doing that, uh, the other angel groups woke up, smelled the coffee, and started moving too. So in angel group investing right now, um, not only about 30% of the angels are women, but also um, about 30% of the funding is going to women in marked uh, contrast to the continued. The, the, sorry, those numbers uh, are uh, in Boston or the United States. In they're 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 pretty much U.S. wide uh, okay. for for angel groups, not individual angels, just in, yes. in investing on their own, okay. but people who like to do it in a group uh, mode. So about thirty and thirty, twenty-five to thirty percent of the members are women, and twenty-five to thirty percent of the invested funds through this type of process, angel group investing, go out to women-led or women-highly participated companies, and, which and took a long time yes. and, and will keep taking a long time because it just, it, it's, um, it's what it is. It's, uh, you know, a lot of investors invest in folks that look like them. And if mm -hmm. the core of the people who are doing the investing are male, then they have this tendency to invest in um, in male entrepreneurs, but but we work really hard with our teams to uh, make sure that they 
you know, keep building up diversity in the the companies that come through the accelerator, build up diversity in the team, et cetera, as 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 one of the criteria for that follow-on funding. So the the the, the main uh, selling point is that diversity is good for business. It is. It's easy to see. You can see uh, McKinsey studies and other things that show if the senior leadership in uh, publicly traded companies and that and that they have also have diverse boards of directors. You can see that they outperform uh, their peers in in that industry by significant percents. So, documented over and over again in studies that diverse teams make better decisions. And 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 again, back to the core problem that's happening in a startup, which is, are you listening to the market? And so, whatever market you're serving, there's women in it. So probably can listen a little better if you're um, if you're you know touch more attuned to that to that market and the same issues around various other um, minority groups too right all of the all of these groups need to get a hold of the you know, entrepreneurship sto- story the entrepreneurship thinking and to some extent be a part of the entrepreneurial surge that hopefully will remake the uh, lots of things in time, you know, in time for global warming, in time for education change wow. before automation comes, in time for or, or intense automation comes, but, you know, in time for all these different things. So all of these have to be, um, you know, ha- have to be uh, working in time. <laughs> That's why we need entrepreneurship is to do it all in time. All in time. <laughs> are, are there any recommendations you will uh, give to um, a woman that wants to become an entrepreneur? Hmm. I think there's. I think there's. Uh, there's. There's three things. One is um, most women entrepreneurs really do do this, which is do do your homework. Make sure that you definitely understand your financial model. That you that you that you know what you're talking about. Um, the second is to. Um, uh, to, to turn the question around. So what's happening right now is that the, there's lots of research that shows that um, that when uh, if you if you watch two teams uh, that that the and one's male led and one's female led that in general the males will get questions that are um, you know well how big is that opportunity how could you grow it to that additional side market and women will mostly get questions that are um, well, could you prove that that market's there, or how would you guarantee that this would happen, or or that the, that that change will happen mm-hmm. in time? And so the question is to turn it around and to say, if they ask you a, def- a question to, that that puts you on the defensive, to turn it around and say, oh, uh, well, not only is the market big enough, but here's how we can prove it and go on to prove these other things. So to to not take the defensive stance, because it turns out that the bias is coming in in the questions, you have to remove the bias and push so it back. So there's research that women get asked more tough questions than males. Yes. Oh, yeah. Lots mm-hmm. of it. In fact, they took uh, t- TechCrunch uh, and did a full analysis and saw the bias. It's a really interesting set of materials. And then, and then the last one is a little bit to me, which is, um, lots of times we'll see women will be describing the business that they know very, very well, the one that they've modeled out, and um, and and that's the core thing that they describe, um, and 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 it's a pretty interesting business, but in many cases the male presenter 
pushes past that in their presentation, too. And so they say, oh, me and my brilliant team will add an additional product at month by month 14. Oh, and there's going to be a services requirement here. So in the end of the day, um, many times the um, the male presenter will be including sort of futures that aren't fully baked yet, but are likely to be there and sort of, um, sort of, yep. And then when we're, when we're going up like this, we're going to go up like this too. And it's, it's sort of a, um, it, it's sort of an optimism about things we don't yet have nailed down. And, um, and, uh, and the tendency for, for women is to present what they know really, really well and can defend instead of sort of um, pushing out in, in this direction. And so people say is it so a lack of— So we brag a little bit more. Oh, yeah. I'd say that guys just have a tendency to kind of over-promote in all ways. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, so, but, but so, so I just say, yeah, you've got to assume that you and your brilliant team will, in fact— add that extra product, do this one more thing, and just, you know, um, because investors as a whole are going to be discounting your numbers anyhow, so pushing them a, a touch and making sure that you take the optimistic side of how you tell the story um, is just fine. Um, and and, and, uh, um, and so, so sort of three different three different things. You know, you really have to have it nailed. None mm -hmm. of this, just pretend it's okay. Um, you you got to say the positive and turn it back toward the positive, and then go ahead, step out of your comfort zone a tiny bit and tell and tell the slightly bigger story. I remember once when I was fundraising for a company I uh, was the CEO of called Corey Technologies. Um, here in the, the Boston area, we would just describe the the side the core market and then these other two markets that we might fit in say ooh those are really big taken together but when i got to california they would always say well, where's your other slide? And I was like, well, what's that? And I, I started calling it the rule of the world slide. So basically the idea that you could describe how this could become an important component in many, many ways. And so, um, so really- Rule of the world? Rule, yeah, rule of the world slide, yeah. So so, so think big uh, at some point in your okay, story. Okay, I conquer the world like pink and brain. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a, a, a friend in the university, Tech de Monterrey, that uh, studied women's in entrepreneurship. And- and there's a cultural thing uh, in different countries, I think, and uh, in particular in Mexico. She find out that uh, women are not as good at networking as men. And uh, the explanation that uh, she gave to that in the interviews is that socially it's uh, not the same for a man to say uh, he knew someone new, let's go uh, have a dinner, let's do business. And a, and a woman doing that can be perceived differently in yeah. the culture, which is uh, sometimes uh, unfair, no? Yeah. I don't well, know I if it happens in other parts of the yeah, world. Yeah, although I, although I think there's lots of benign networking environments, you know, certainly conferences and things like that, where, you know, having that coffee or whatever is just fine. And, um, and, and so I think, I, I think that people can, can get to that point. I, I do think that women need to... Make the make sure that they do get a list, uh, you know, sort of a list of advisors and mentors that they check in with pretty often. And and actually, when I look at my own behavior uh, back when I was uh, younger, I would think, oh, I can't bother them. Whereas in fact, now I know, oh, I um, people love being bothered, right? I mean, they don't 
they don't love being bothered, bothered, but they love the idea that that somebody thinks, oh, you have the expertise I need. I need to talk to you. And so finding finding people are generous. People are generous, if particularly if they feel like you value their insights. And so finding making sure that you that you're pretty rigorous about going out and getting um, that kind of advice that will help um, put you in the environment where somebody will remember and, and bring to the next stage. And, and, and it is, it is a, a confidence to ask, right? So people say, oh, women are less confident. No, they're not less confident. They just don't always know, like these kind of social norms, the confidence to ask for a little more help or to ask for another uh, meeting about this or for an introduction to a certain person. So all of that is, is in fact, um, a learned skill and, and, and needs to be practiced. It's, it's kind of a muscle. You need to exercise that muscle so you can get good at it. So we are getting towards the end of our interview. Is there any uh, recommendation that you want to make in general to tech entrepreneurs? And if you want to invite them also to Learn Launch? Sure, or? sure. So, so, um, so let me start with a really short description of Learn Launch uh, at, at large. So when we, when we started um, founding Learn Launch, we realized that we needed to bring the community together. And so we have quite a few uh, little classes and meetups. Um, and then we have a big conference each year, about 1,500 people come. And you guys are all welcome to come up. It's always in Boston, right around February 1st. And it's really cold, and uh, and so, uh, but but very a very a very discussive uh, conference with lots of uh, really good panels that put together the different perspectives. We call it across boundaries because we don't want all the teachers over in that corner and all the investors over in that corner. We want people with different perspectives on the same panel discussing it. If we need a parent perspective on a panel or a superintendent. Or a, or a college professor or whatever, we try to put together really discussive uh, panels or people who are, who are involved in uh, supporting the workforce uh, training part of the world. Um, so, so, uh, so we want to bring people together. Um, we have a pretty good newsletter people can read. And, um, and then we also have this co-working space that you're in. So we're always welcoming people to come that want to spend a little bit of time. They're always welcome to just stop by. If they want to rent a desk for a month and then be here in Boston uh, to have time to sort of check out the community and get to know people and get to go out to the different uh, universities around town and other things. Uh, love to love to support that. Um, and if a, a company's thinking about moving uh, to the U.S., uh, Boston's a great place to move. If you're an ed tech company, over 26,000 people are employed in education technology, not counting anybody who works in a school or a university. So somebody has just left the Pearson facility down the street or is about to um, leave one of the other big um, groups that work on education here, and, and they're ready for, to be your instructional designer or whatever. So lots of expertise. And, um, and, uh, so, and then the accelerator. So uh, the accelerator has a lot of different uh, programs open at different points in time. We've just announced uh, an early stage program, what we would ordinarily call our boost program, uh, with a special focus on skills for the new economy and uh, language learning. And we're actually going to be doing that uh, 
cohort and a couple of other cohorts with a major um, education institution um, um, but at any point in time, the accelerator is about to have applications open, and it's a great way to come in. About uh, 10 out of the 58 companies that have been through the accelerator have come from other countries. And um, in general, we help them with being successful in the U.S. market, but we're also happy to help with anything, and we'd love to see great new ideas. Uh, that's great. Uh, thank you very much um, for your uh, generosity. And I expect that also there will be uh, people that uh, will come to your conference uh, and uh, maybe sign up for your accelerator, hopefully more women also. Yeah. Oh, and uh, we've had almost 50% of the leaders of our uh, ed tech companies um, have, have a woman founder or co-founder. That's a, so um, one more thing. So I'll say that. I'll say that um, sure. so, uh, so we've just announced a new... Uh, a new cohort for our early stage uh, sort of boost level uh, accelerators, and we're going to be announcing um, in a week that, that that our partner in that new type of accelerator is Education Testing Service, the big assessment um, company, and they'll be providing extra testing resources for anybody who um, who's involved in in that cohort. Applications close about July 10th, though. Okay, so uh, we, we know that it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> Thank so you very much, Jean. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash podcast. Thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producer Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post production Max Perez. Stay tuned for the next episode of Edutrends and visit Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content. <laughs>